Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I read and speak as a white man. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I read and speak as a white man. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Weizen Radler, a non-alcoholic beer from the Polliner Brewery. This comes as a listener recommendation. I'm looking forward to drink, trying this one because this is this is an actual German beer, like from Germany. Uh, yeah, uh, yellow but not see-through. Smells sweet. Oh, I'll have things to say about this. What are we doing today, voiceover? This month, we are talking about race and read a series of papers looking at the experience of black students in U.S. education. First, we read an article that examined the story of the space traders as a starting point for imagining what it looks like to create black education spaces for students to express fugitivity and create racial counterspaces. Later, we read an empirical study that measured associations between autonomy-supportive teaching practices and student self-determination skill expression. They found connections between the way black students perceive autonomy support and their engagement and skill development. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Trading Spaces, Anti-Blackness and Reflections on Black Education Futures. This was written by Cesare Warren and Justin Coles. This was published in Equity and Excellence in Education in 2020. So I queued this paper because we are literally recording this episode on Juneteenth. And so uh, I thought it was appropriate to spend time reading material from um, from black authors and thinking about issues specifically relevant to uh, the black students in classrooms across the country. Uh, so that, that's all. That's actually part of the reason why we even chose the intro we did to to identify and recognize the positionality that we have uh, as two white men here in the room um, reading this material and trying to learn more about what it means to uh, meet the needs of black students. So I chose this paper. Uh, I I noticed that it had a space element. Like there's a, there's a time when they were thinking about space, and since I work on space for a living, I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. That's this will have some some maybe some direct applicability. Um, and as I was actually getting into reading it, uh, I didn't actually realize how much of it like is this is critical race theory, yeah, and we're reading sure, it. Sure, one hundred percent. And so I, I I didn't do that on purpose necessarily because I don't read the papers when we choose them. So. Uh, that's great. I want to learn more about critical race theory, uh, but I didn't. I didn't know that when I first chose this paper. And relevant, considering there are certain um, uh, uh, conflicts occurring now about different places in the United States um, arguing whether or not critical acknowledgement of critical race theory should be a component of education. There are places in the United States where. Uh, changing the way we present history to remove the acknowledgement of our government's racist uh, history, that's on the table in some places for consideration as though it were a good thing to do that. Uh, and uh, that, so the fact that it's an accident that this paper, um, includes discussion of critical race theory, but uh, does 
is is a, I think a happy accident because uh, I I mean I'm jumping to I think the end here, but one of the one of the um, things that I highlighted about this paper that I thought was really important was in in like the very last section of the paper the author stated that we contend that equity in education and then in parentheses they put black education because they're they're making a greater statement about equity in education period that applies to black the black experience we contend that equity in education is learning to see the world for what it really is and then working toward the future one desires so if there are places that are trying to remove uh racist practices events cultural standards from history the our, our our historical narrative they are promoting a vision of the world that is not as it is uh and looking at the world as it is requires us to acknowledge some ugly uncomfortable parts about that world uh so that we can then acknowledge where we are so that we can move toward the world we desire to be in and so uh acknowledging uncomfortable things and recognizing injustice uh systemic complications systemic problems systemic discrimination um uh patterns and habits of society that discriminate uh against some and provide an advantageous bias toward others being able to acknowledge identify and discuss those are necessary so that we can work toward a future we desire uh, and that's a worthy goal yeah agreed and i think i think that was a piece of the conversation that i wanted to have today was what does it mean to look at the united states history critically and clearly to recognize it for what it was and the authors and the authors lay out um, a fair amount of that background i think in a really useful way they in the, early on in the paper go all the way back to the framing of the constitution and point out all framers all the framers were white men and they purposely de designated black people as three-fifths of a person they purposefully delayed the date of the slave trade to be discontinued they purposefully obliged all constituent states in the newly formed government to enforce slave laws slavery laws so it's not like it was an accident it's in the original extant framing parts of the documents that still to this day guide our country and so we have to read those parts of the constitution also and so so okay so here was something that i wanted to say to you earlier that now the tape is rolling i'm going to say it um because something that i want to be intentional about in the conversation we have now is uh this paper they the authors uh, part of the way through describing the history of the United States and laying out uh, you know the foundations from which they argue for the creation of black educational spaces. They specifically refuse space in the article to be yielded to a never-ending list of the ways black families, youth, and communities are dehumanized in the white supremacist U.S. nation-state. That's not what the author's intent is, and so that's not where I want to spend my time in this conversation either. And so uh, what the authors lay out is a vision of what does it look like to move towards that, that future, that the future, mm, a, a future. I'm not sure that I have a, a good way to state that in this moment. A future where what? 
we want to move to a future where what, right? Like we frame that this is about acknowledging the world the way it is and moving to a desired future. So what is the desired future we want to move toward? And so instead we're gonna focus on a discussion of the a future where there are school spaces for black, black male, black female, black students generally, uh, black youth, and those spaces act as sites of possibility. So they spent a fair amount of time talking about Derek Bell's work, who is one of the architects of critical race theory. And he he tells a story. Yeah. He told he 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 created a story, he shares a story uh, called The Space Traders that is uh, informs the title of this paper. And that's that story is powerful. Briefly, uh, the 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 Space Traders was published in 1992 and is a science fiction proposal that uh, the uh, aliens come and they offer the United States government a deal. Give us all your black people and we will give you abundant resources, allowing you to uh, function in, in from a wealthy and powerful position. And the, I believe the articulated point of that narrative was to uh, highlight the concept of anti-blackness as part of the history of the United States. And so in that story, what's um, what, what the authors note and talk about for a little while is that, that there's a lot of ambiguity left in strategic parts of that story that tell us something about the narratives that were built around slavery and are built now around some of the anti-black discrimination that exists in U.S. systems. For instance, uh, these space traders, as they're generally called, the space traders, they, they approached as, as friendly, as, as congenial uh, aliens. And so they're like, uh, we want to take all of the black people in the United States back to our home star. And they didn't, there was no indication of malevolence, although there was certainly a possibility that that was going to come later. There was, there was no, there was no information at all about what um, the black people on their spaceship would experience once they departed the United States. And so there were, you could tell stories about how they were being, being liberated and freed from the racist United States that exists now, and that they were going to be able to go away from that and have a place um, fully liberated and fully empowered, or maybe they were being entirely lied to and they were going to be taken back to a place of oppression by the space aliens. And there was no clarity put around that. And it started to explain, or I, I could see some, I could see how that, that, vagueness and ambiguity left space to understand how some of the racist explanations and justifications for discriminatory systems have arisen around the actual experiences and institutions in the country. They, they talked about this a little bit uh, in the paper, but it really resonated with me as I, as, as, as mental wellness is, is it's a focus of my uh, practice currently that, you know, when someone People can be put in a state of disequilibrium when they're, you know, they have to choose whether their actions are justifiable, and sometimes they can, and sometimes they can't. And anti-blackness and the dehumanizing of black bodies and the com the commoditization of black bodies is a prerequisite to reduce the cognitive dissonance of white supremacy, and that was reframed in the space trader by the in the space trader narrative 
by being ambiguous about what happens to black people because it allows the answer to that question be to be it doesn't matter the greater good our national thrivingness is supported by the commoditization of these black people and what happens to them doesn't actually matter so we don't even need to include it in the narrative uh, so it 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 puts these anti-black ideas it forces us to acknowledge them i want to take this to a place of like shoulds right like the whole, yeah. the whole point of the show is to get to shoulds and so the the author is about midway through start to talk about its relevance for for education very directly um and even uh they point out again i'm, I'm going to be quoting this article a lot because I, I i want to use the words that are in the article and so there's another quote there midway through where they 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 point out that spending any significant amount of time in the U.S. renders educators vulnerable to internalizing messages about blackness that unconsciously shade the unfortunate professional decisions that lead to them uh, to reproduce harsh, inhumane policy. And that's, I think, a really important piece that kind of frames some of the examples that they shared after that quote of how this shows up in educational systems. And we start to get into the places where we as teachers have some agency and have some responsibility. It should not be a surprise that ed educational outcomes for students are not equitable based on demographics. Uh, we have uh, disproportionate disciplinary rates. We have disproportionate graduation rates. We have disproportionate second uh, uh, college success rates. We have all kinds of well-documented, measured, disparate, disparate experiences um, for Black students uh, compared to other demographics. So this is not a surprise that, um, that we are underserving our Black population. Um, the question is, are we acknowledging uh, can we better serve our black population by acknowledging the systemic consequence of anti-blackness in our education system? And uh, if we're going to see our education system the way that it is and move toward a desired education future, uh, we have to do that. So what are some of the complications? What are some of the narratives they say that are occurring uh, at disproportionate rates to our students? So they share six examples, two in each category, that are they're powerful examples of of those with power, they're not all teachers, educators, um, school resource officers, people in positions of authority in schools, um, doing harm to black students. There's just, there are powerful examples. I think one of them is worth, I think we should give space to at least one of them. And then what I want to do is connect this to another concept that they had that, um, there are, um, in terms of giving students, giving black students, black education spaces as often as we can, safe black education spaces as often as we can. Um, what, oh gosh, I have so much, I have so much you to say. Make a mess of it. That's fine. You know, yeah. Make, yeah. You can fix it in post. Or I probably won't. Like right. that, this of all times. I don't want this tape to be like the coherent thread 
that it sometimes comes out to be, which it never is. Like it just, just so that I don't know if any listeners are still living under the illusion that our actual conversations sound anything like what comes out in the edited tape because they don't. But the, especially here that we need to spend some time with the dissonance. And so I think that's what the tape is going to come out to sound like. And so let's, let's, let's grapple. Let's do it. There are many atrocious stories of injustice and violence occurring uh, with black victims in our schools. They gave six narratives in the, in the paper, but we can look at many places to find many more. One of them in the paper was one 15-year-old student who was suspended for 10 days for pulling a male student onto the ground after that male student had been threatening to shoot him and his family for months uh, with no clear uh, part of the narrative of whether the white male student was ever uh, addressed for their behavior. Uh, and there, there are many others of varying degrees of violence. That is just the first one um, picked really because I couldn't pick any of the others. I just decided on the first one to share. Now, uh, these are to illustrate that our system is broken. Our system is broken, and I really want to address that because it, it, elsewhere in the paper, uh, and I, we're going to talk about black education spaces in, in, in a second because that's uh, what the paper says we should be doing is fostering and promoting the creation of black education spaces. So we'll talk about what those are in a minute. But one of the, one of the reasons why uh, all black male schools are considered to be uh, effective is because they allow for the creation of safe black uh, um, black education spaces. But the problem is that um, the all black boy schools, though they are protecting them from certain systemic assaults, also promote an anti-black narrative where those students are what need to be corrected as opposed to the system, which is broken. The black male students, we're gonna send them to a special black male school that specializes in helping fix black male students so they become productive members of society is a racist narrative. It is an anti-black narrative that there is something broken with these boys because they are black as opposed to recognizing that these atrocities and discrimination and, and problems that occur at a disproportionate level with black students in our schools is part of a broken anti-black system. So I am glad that those boys are getting the educa their educational and academic and cognitive and personal developmental needs met. I really am. But even that solution is not the future we want to drive toward. And they, they point out in a section of their, of their description that taking an Afrofuturist vision of um, imagining what that can look like necessarily includes both understanding and recognizing the past as well as envisioning the future. Those things are together, they're interwoven. And so, um, and so all, both of those things are necessary, an understanding and reckoning with the, with the history while imagining a future born from that history. My recollection is that the call is both working to deconstruct anti-Black racist systems in America while simultaneously working in our own local context and using the agency we have to make Black education spaces and to support or to support 
and to recognize and to reinforce those spaces, depending on the identities you bring into the school um, and the relationships that you have with, with the students in your school. Making Black education spaces is something that we can all, we can all contribute to tomorrow. These spaces are a place where uh, Black students are comfortable and empowered to develop self-determination, self-actualization, and self-advocacy. Yeah, and that when they say spaces, this is this can be physical places, and they give many physical examples, but they don't have to be. It's not limited to physical spaces. It can also be um, a social moment. It can also be a way of thinking. It's it's the most general definition of space. Yeah. So this could be time in your pl- classroom for conversations. This could be uh, places where the where uh, a black student community meets regularly uh, of their own volition in 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 the school day. Uh, this could be um, a regular opportunity for them to uh, have discord uh, discourse amongst themselves and teachers and administrators and the community outside of the school uh, to answer some of the questions about what do they want to pursue for themselves and what do they want their future world to look like. And this is a place where dreams and fantasies should be encouraged. Wouldn't it be great if this happened? Wouldn't it be amazing if that happened? Wouldn't it be cool if I did this or they did that or we did this? Uh, what would that look like if this happened? Those fantasies about the future uh, are encouraged to broaden the conceptualization of their own humanity and for us to learn about their conceptualization of their humanity. Yep, there's a, there's a quote in that section as they describe self, uh, self-determination uh, from a cited study in the paper. And they talked about, it's a quote from a, from a, uh, a black boy, a young boy, uh, a black boy in high school age, um, and many of them were expecting to go on to college, and they're um, being heavily mentored to be supported to go into college. And um, this this boy gave the quote that we knew we were black males, and we felt like commodities. I don't want to say we were caged, but there was a lot of limitations put on us. As uh, he reflected on the expectation that they were being groomed for college, and so that felt like a foregone conclusion. Like he hadn't really had the opportunity to answer the question, do I want to go to college? Um, and if, if so, why? Or what, what does college even look like? Like, which colleges would I consider? And, what, and that just none of that process had really happened. He, he was remarking on the fact that he, as a participant in this system, felt very supported and had generally positive, positive opinions about, about his mentors, about his experience, but that really going to college was not a choice that he'd ever been asked to make addresses the self-actualization component of these Black education spaces. Uh, What self-identity do you have and what vision for your future do you wish to pursue? So now, once we've got the self-determination, you get to to choose what you want your future to be. Um, And so we need to empower our Black spaces by changing the standard account so that students can foster... uh, this element of self-efficacy so that they have the belief that they can pursue their future as they decide it to be. I don't have a smooth transition, but I want to think a little bit about some of the specific examples that they gave. Yeah, let's do that. Of black education spaces, because I thought 
Well, I don't, yeah, I think that is a fine smooth transition. I mean, if these are the three highlights, what does that look like? Yeah, let's raise it to the concrete to yeah. use the, the language from one of our other papers. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the Because uh, they laid out, if we're going to make these spaces, the authors laid out that they sort of have two overlapping ideals that kind of co-occur in a black education space. And the, the fugitivity and racial counter spaces are the two ideas. I loved the concept of fugitivity. And I wrestled with the concept of fugitivity. Fugitivity, they described it as a concept like, you know, uh, you're in a, in a lecture hall of 100 students. Two of them are black. Those two black students see each other from across the hall and give a little nod, you know, a little hello, a little wave, acknowledging each other amidst this sea of whiteness. Um, so they acknowledge that they are outside of this system. Being Recognizing fugitivity is accepting, seeing the world for the way it is. There is a system here that isn't designed to serve us. And we are outside of it. And we recognize to each other that we are outside of it, that we are not, be, this system is not designed to help us. Um, and I really appreciated that. And I wanted to, I wanted, I had what struggled is that um, I want to be that too. And I'm not. I am within the system that is designed to empower and support me uh, in my, in my demographics. So, um, working against the established codified rules from someone that has been disenfranchised from those rules is different from working against the established codified rules as someone who is designed to be empowered by those rules. And we can, all agree to do that, but what that feels like is going to be different. Notice, honor, and sustain. Yeah. The terminology that the authors use. And I think that's an important piece. There's a there's another example that they gave. Um, this is in the counter space explanation. So when there are spaces and students um, are unrepentantly commandeering physical space and to make that sort of, um, I thought of solace, I thought of refuge. You know, I... I the, there's a black student who is existing and working within this system that supports white supremacy all day. And then they have an opportunity to make some space on the stairs with some of their peers who are also black. And it's a racial counter space where they can, they can, they can be together in solidarity and embrace and embrace uh, a shared identity. And so, as you say, I, I, I am not black. And so what I can do is I can notice that happening and I can honor that space. And I can be sensitive about how I exist relative to that space and whether, I, whether I'm taking too much space or whether I need to just, I'll just leave the space. And what I can do to sustain that space, because specifically if I'm thinking about shoulds, I can think of examples in my life, some of them literally on, this, on stairs, where there have been students... Uh, who do exactly this thing, do exactly this thing and, and spend time making space on those stairs for themselves. And that's treated by faculty and that's treated by administration as a nuisance. They're taking space from us. That's school space. And they're taking that space from us. And so, you know, we have to set up, we have to set up these tables and these decorations or something. Let's put it on those stairs over there. I can recognize that that is encroaching on, that is, that is retaking 
space that currently has been taken by students to be a black educational space. And I can defend that space using my agency and my position because I noticed that that's what's happening. I know it's essential to building a more just system. And so while I'm not going to walk over there and, and join it for no other reason, because I'm an adult, like I'm not, I'm an adult at school. And so I'm not going to be doing that, but I can use what agency I have to help sustain that space and recognize it for the value that it has. Empower each other. For our second segment, we read Perceived Teacher Autonomy Support and Self-Determination Skill Expression, Predictors of Student Engagement Among African-American High School Students. This was written by Janice Parker, Leandra Paris, Megan Lau, Angela Dobbins, Lauren Schatz, Scott Porish, and Brian Wilkins. This was published in the Journal of Black Psychology in 2021. So I queued this one because, again, I wanted to foreground discussions about how we support black students in our classrooms. Uh, and I love self-determination theory, so I got really excited when I saw that in the title. Uh, and self-determination was supported in our last paper as something that we need to promote in our black education spaces and for our students. So being able to say, well, what, you know. What does that look like with a little more resolution? Let's focus in less on the philosophical and more on the practical. Uh, so that that was nice. It was a nice. Yeah, they, they leaned right into the kinds of research that I like and the kinds of methods that I enjoy. And good golly, I, this there's a lot of stuff that I enjoyed thinking about in this paper. Uh, so let's start with um, you autonomy. We talk about autonomy specifically. Autonomy, autonomy, supportive classrooms is like a crystallized idea that we've touched on once or twice. But maybe we should do a quick run through. Uh, yeah, so perceived teacher autonomy support is a term they used over and over again. In other words, does my teacher help me be autonomous? Does my teacher support my ability to be autonomous? This is uh, something they assessed in the kids. And so what did that mean? They include allowing student choice, uh, appropriately challenging students, being flexible with teacher decisions, uh, identify uh, communicating the value of assigned tasks to the students uh, and uh, acknowledging and valuing students' negative emotions regarding the tasks that are assigned. And so in short, the descriptor autonomy supportive classroom is about describing the classroom and the teacher choices and the teacher behaviors all supporting the autonomy of students. And so another piece of this, this study was saying, okay, what kinds of benefits do we see when students, specifically black students, are learning in autonomy supportive classrooms? And so they uh, used an instrument to measure student engagement um, as sort of proxy for student progress or student development because engagement is so closely associated with lots of positive outcomes. And so the question was, if there are black students in autonomy supported classrooms are they going to be associated with higher measures of student engagement oh yeah that's a fair statement and it's a worthy question as well because uh student engagement has been shown consistently to improve educational outcomes uh and so if we can perform actions in a classroom that improves student, engage student engagement we generally should do that so is this something that improves student engagement 
this uh, study involved asking 145 black students across four grades uh, a bunch of questions uh, regarding their self-determination and self-determination skills, how much their they felt their teacher supported their autonomy, and their uh, student engagement. And one thing that I appreciated before, before we answer that question, one of the things that I appreciated from these authors was they specifically clarified in some of their like introduction context material, said we are looking at self-determination theory to look at how uh, student feelings of uh, autonomy and competence and relatedness uh, can get better, those general ideas under self-determination theory. But that does not excuse the role of uh, the educational system and it, what it plays to marginalize and oppress black students. So that is, that is a thing. We need to deal with this racist system, even though the study is looking at students and their sense of self-determination. We are not saying, we are not excusing racist systems, deal with those right now. And I appreciate that they were very clear about laying that out. So they, so they went through, they've got a really robust, like my number one thing that, I, that I'm like, I'm bookmarking this publication because they've got a really good detailed description of the instruments and tools they were considering to build their survey and like the reliability and validity evidence that they're using for justifying using their surveys. And so like, I'm like eating all of that up. Like, mm, I'm going to, I want all of this stuff. It's super useful, but not very good for tape. So, and, and for me, I read a long middle section that said, we asked them questions and did stats. That's what it means to me. That's how I summarized yeah. that like middle two thirds of the paper. Yeah. And so they were looking at, are there correlations between, um, the students' sense of uh, the students' engagement, their report of their engagement, and their report of um, how much they perceived to have their autonomy supported, and uh, their report of their ability to enact their self-determination skills. And so, self-determination skills. These are just: um, Can I identify my goals? Am I aware of? how I am affecting my progress toward those goals? Can I regulate myself? Can I ask for what I need to meet my goals? Uh, can I problem solve to get to my goals? Can I communicate uh, regarding my goals? Uh, can I achieve the things that I want for myself? Uh, and so when we talk about self-determination skills, those are the skills we're referring to. When students perceive that teachers are supporting their autonomy, both the self-determination skills of the student and student engagement increases. So what should teachers do? Teachers should ask students for feedback regarding instruction. This is not direct formative assessment of content, or this is assessment of instruction. How am I doing? What do you like about the activities we're doing in our class? What would you like to do as I engage with you? How would you like to communicate? How would you like me to communicate? Get feedback on your instruction. And I think that that extends beyond just simply, did you like today's activity? Did, did you like today's you know, text excerpt or whatever, but can actually feed back on some of our previous segments conversation. You know, am I making space? Am I, am I defending and supporting and recognizing 
where you are making black educational spaces and are there things I can do to better support and defend those spaces? And so it can specifically speak to your efficacy as a teacher working in solidarity with black students. Number two, inform students of the intended cognitive skill development opportunity or benefit or value of the particular assignments you're giving. And again, this one, I think still folding in the feedback element, but also begs the question of how am I working towards epistemological pluralism, epistemological justice, are all of my assignments perhaps unintentionally reinforcing one particular way of being or knowing, or what can I do to create a curricular space? And this is more complicated than just why are we doing this? This is asking for the value of this to the students. What is, there are things that we do in the classroom that are sometimes mandated externally driven or or logistically solving some kind of problem uh i mean there's a lot that goes on in this social endeavor and so you may find that there are times where you struggle to answer the question how is this a benefit to the student and if you are having that problem if you if you're like there's a task or an assignment or an experience and you you're trying to trying to create you're trying to promote autonomy of your students in your classroom and so you want to tell them why it's valuable and you're having a hard time doing that it might be valuable to reconsider the employment of that particular activity so the third one was allow students to make choices and propose alternative methods for completing classroom assignments yeah, flexibility. And that's like, just do UDL, like be flexible in your classroom and accommodate multiple approaches and multiple perspectives on your material. That seems good for a whole host of reasons, one of which is inclusivity. Yeah. Accommodate and respect self-advocacy. Yeah. Uh, uh, I particularly remember uh, myself, and now, and, I, and now I reflect on it proudly, giving a student leniency in how she wanted to turn in what was basically a book report and she wanted to challenge the format and do something very different uh and at the time i was uncomfortable uh with this leniency uh but in general during a COVID year i just kind of said when in doubt go with the flexibility and so i did and now i'm reinf i feel better you know i'm i'm i can put that i can put that choice to rest right it, it was uh, and incidentally, that was a black student asking to do that. So I, again, I feel good. I feel good about having made that choice in retrospect so I can put aside any of the anxiety I was feeling about, about that freedom. It was the right choice. And the, that makes me think of another story um, I had with a student in an honors class I was teaching. And again, this we had a major project that I just introduced. And she came to me and she said, hey, I, I filled out this paper you asked me to fill out. This describes a project and I will get an A. Like, I know how to play this game. I know this is what you want. I can check all the boxes. This is not what I want to do. This doesn't improve my life. Like, here's what I want to do. It's very different. I'm not sure if I'll succeed, which means I'm not sure if I'll get an A. And I want an A. So if you're not, if I'm not safe to do this, 
that I'm going to hand you this piece of paper right now. And I had the opportunity to, to work with her. She was, she was a white female student uh, and say, it's going to be all right. I'm so excited that you felt comfortable telling me this. And I want you to do something that's valuable and that challenges you. And I don't know what's going to happen either, but I don't want that, that useless piece of paper in your hand. So don't worry about it. Don't even turn in a new one. Like let's, let's, let's drop the systems and let's do this thing you have in mind. And it's going to be okay. Like I'm just, I'm using my position to just tell you it's going to be safe. Like I, I believe in you and we'll figure it out, but let's do it. And over the course of the project, I got to watch her work hard. I got to, I got to watch her grow as a scientist a lot. And we blew through other checkpoints and she's like, Hey, Mr. Ralph, I don't know how I'm going to take what I'm doing and fit it into this next deliverable, you know, moment in the project. And I was like, no, nope, don't worry about that. Forget it. And so like, we just skipped it. Like, doesn't fit. Don't worry. Like do your thing. And then at the end, she turned in something amazing. It was, I'm just, I was, I was so proud of it. I even, I'd watched her work on it and was still like, had a hard time believing that she had done something so incredible. I believe it. I believe it. But I, I was like, this is amazing. This is, this is better than students with much more training than you. But those same, that same approach, I could take that not, I could take that approach not with a student who is attempting something academically challenging. I could take that something who's a student who's doing something that's unfamiliar to me. Say, I want to, if a, a black student comes to me and says, I want to do this project that is relevant to my family and where I live. And it doesn't look like the project that you had planned, Mr. Ralph, but it's what I want to be doing. I could take that same stance and say, don't worry about my system. Like, but yeah, set it aside, forget it. Let's do this thing that's relevant for you. Let's make this space together so you can self-determine, you can self-actualize to grow in the way you want to grow. And my job will be to recognize this moment and to sustain and support this moment. Make better mistakes. How was the beer? So I'm really glad that we got to drink uh, a non-alcoholic on the show because it's it's a beer. I did a little bit of homework before we jumped in, and um, many of the non-alcoholic beers that I know and recognize, and this one included, uh, it's brewed as a beer and it had alcohol in it, and then a part of the preparation process removes most of the alcohol. And so, like, I, cool, we drink stuff, and that's fine. So, so I got to try non-alcoholic. I don't know that I've ever had a non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever had a non-alcoholic beer. Um, um, I didn't really enjoy it. Uh, that's not a surprise to me because it has qualities that I like in the beer spectrum that you do not like. It's sweet, just like our Cherry Fandango last last month. This one is also sweet. And uh, I... I can smell the honey. There's honey on the on the on the little box over here where the beer comes from. Honey, uh, lemon, lemon. I said honey, but I meant lemon. I'm sorry, I meant lemon. But it smells like it tastes. It tastes like drinking a lemon iced tea, like a heavily lemon iced tea. Yeah, and I like it. I like it, and um, I like it because I think my brain did a little switcheroonie. I have an expected taste of yellower beers. 
And when I get the sweet lemon drop flavor instead of what I expect, my brain says, ooh, that's a nice surprise. And that makes me feel good. So if you like sweet and you like lemon and you don't want to get drunk, uh, then uh, yeah, I, I recommend this for that matrix of preferences. Well, that's our show. So thanks for tuning in. It's been another month and we really appreciate having all of you here. We're going to have our big season finale next month so we can get ready for the coming school year. But for now, I hope that teachers who are done, I hope that you are enjoying your summer as you see fit. And teachers who are still finishing up, we see you uh, hang in there and uh, summer will be here, I hope, as soon as possible. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.